Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book By Searching by Isabel Kuhn with permission of Overseas Mission Fellowship International. And we are in Chapter 5, A Pair of Shoes and the Furs Conference. Here, Julia, Mrs. Tom Cole said to her sister-in-law, Mrs. Otis Whipple, the conference will soon open and you need a pair of shoes. With a significant look, she held out a $5 bill. I do not know if those were her exact words, but the gift was given for shoes and the significant look along with it, as Mrs. Cole told me herself years later. Julia Whipple was not one to neglect her personal appearance. To be well-groomed had been her lifelong habit, but of late, funds had not been too plentiful. The story of how Julia and Otis Whipple gave the Lord their last earthly possession, the honeymoon cabin at the Furs in Bellingham, Washington and how God used it to establish an annual Lake Watson Bible and Missionary Conference has been told by Doris Coffin Aldrick in the book called The Furs of the Lord. Suffice it to say that in 1923 was to be their only, only their third attempt at the conference, and Julia Whipple was to be the hostess. What would people think of shabby shoes? But she had something else on her mind. She had been praying that Isabel Miller would come to the Furs Conference. She saw as I had not, that here was one groping blindly towards God and open to dangerous misleadings if she were not carefully grounded in the Word. I might be carried off my feet by some magnetic personality of one of many isms if I chanced to meet one at this stage. I needed grounding in the Scriptures, and I needed Christian fellowship. I had a small college debt to pay and had been earning a salary for only six months now. Maybe money would be a factor in bringing me. At any rate, she waved the matter of the new shoes aside, sat down, and wrote a letter urging me to come. The enclosed five dollars, she said, was what she felt to be the Lord's provision for my boat tickets. Once I reached the furs, I was to be on her, be her guest. Room and board would cost me nothing. Wouldn't I come? I received her gift and invitation quite casually, not at all moved with any desire to go. It was Mrs. Whipple's kind heart that I told myself and now I was forced to do something about it. I felt my excuse would be an easy one to make. The conference came right in the middle of the summer school I'd signed up for. I must get credit for this summer study, and they would hardly give me full credit for six weeks' work if I ran off in the middle for 10 to 11 days. So I made this my test, and I prayed about it. Lord, if it be your will for me to go, please move the authorities to grant consent without reducing my credits, and I'll take it as your will that I am to go. The next morning found me before the register of the Teacher Summer Institute. I had been called to Bellingham on a matter important to me, and I would like to apply for a 10 days' absence without reducing my credits. Can that be done, sir? I asked. He inquired my name, turned over the pages of a book, pursed his lips a moment, and then said, All right, Miss Miller, just tell us when you leave and when you will return. I could not believe my eyes. On the day before, a fellow student teacher had applied for a week off and had been flatly refused. I still do not know how to explain it, but my full credits were given to me. I came out of the office walking as if in a dream. I inquired about the boat schedule and sent word to Mrs. Whipple that I was coming, how and when, and went home to pack my suitcase. So it came about that one evening in July 1923, my boat arrived at Bellingham Pier. I'd never been there before and knew no one. As I looked eagerly around for Mrs. Whipple, a young man and a sweet-faced girl stepped up to me. Isabel Miller, we've come to meet you. Edna Whipple and Evelyn Watson, do you remember meeting us in Seattle? We have a car here. 
Hop in. We have to drive to the conference grounds, but it's not too far. Their warm friendliness made me feel at home immediately, and soon we were whirling out over curving roads with fragrant woods on either hand. It was a twisting labyrinth to me, but finally we turned into a path, drew up among tall fir trees, and there was dear Mrs. Whipple coming to meet me. Her radiance, rippling laughter of joy and overflowing hospitality was something to cuddle down into. I was duly hugged and kissed and then shown into the big, fire-lit room. Older people sat on chairs and the younger ones on the floor before the big, crackling, open fireplace of logs. The flames threw a golden light over all faces, and the young people pulled me down on the floor to sit with them while the evening devotional service continued. Though always shy and reticent with strangers, here I was soon at home and filled with a wonderful content. The atmosphere was charged with the presence of the one I was learning to know and adore. He was the center of everyone else's attention, too. In the doorway, I had been introduced to my sister-in-law, Mrs. Edna Whipple Gish, whose story I told you in Seattle. She is to be your cabin mate. Years afterwards, I asked Mrs. Whipple if this had been a premeditated arrangement, for it was to have been a lasting effect on my life. I can't remember that it was, she said simply. Edna was the only cabin with the spare space as I remember it. After the campfire service, Edna led me through the woodsy path to the little cabin in the woods where she and I were to live. We would be sleeping there. But before going to sleep, she pulled out a little worn Bible from beneath her pillow and read a chapter with me. She prayed. Then, at lights out, we settled down with the perfume of the fir trees soothing us into slumber. I had time to think back on Edna's story just before falling asleep. This is Ellis's Bible, she had said to me as she reverently took the worn, much-marked book from beneath the pillow. Then I remembered what Mrs. Whipple had told me in Seattle. Edna had met Ellis when he was on his first furlough and found him her ideal. He was a man of deep devotion and consecration. Together they had gone to China to the South Gate section of Nanking. The next year they went for their vacation to the beautiful Kuling, a famous mountain resort where there was a pool and good swimming and also many lovely walks. One morning they had decided on a swim. Both were expert swimmers. As they left their tent, they heard a cry from the pool. Ellis immediately ran and dived into the rescue. A young missionary had caught a cramp and gone down. Ellis was successful and saved her life, but he himself disappeared. Edna dived in to search for him. As time dragged on, she could not find him. One can imagine the terror and the anguish of her feelings. Diving, searching, she did not notice that her body was being bruised and battered against the rocks. Ellis, that was all she thought of. Finally, she saw his body washed up behind a little waterfall. Again, she dived, reached him, dragged his body with her, and got it to the shore. But life was gone. Exhausted, she sank on a tree stump and covered her face with her hands. A few minutes later, she happened to look up and saw some Chinese coolies standing terrified with the dead man before them. Quickly, she approached them, explained that the body on the ground was not her husband, that he was safe with God, and she preached Christ to them. Edna was so bruised that she was sent to the hospital and later advised to take a short furlough. Ellis's insurance money was enough to bring her to the furs for the summer, and the conference council asked her to lead the young people's meeting. We never knew what it cost her to set aside her daily heartbreak and be our cheery, radiant Bible teacher. 
Years later, Mrs. Whipple told me how Edna would go to the council and tell them she could not continue. But they would promise to pray for her, and back she would come to us. She laid before us the scriptural challenge to a consecrated life and to missionary service. I'd never given the foreign field one thought up to that time. I was a stay-at-home body by disposition and a slave to physical comforts. Travel never attracted me, and it meant strange faces, strange words, and in other words, discomfort. Edna was the first to show me that I ought to be willing to give this up if God asked me to. When she finally gave a challenge to those who would surrender for foreign service, if he called, I put up my hand. I was surprised to see how thrilled she was. She, to me, it was a matter of course. That night I had made my bargain with God. I had promised him my life. If he wanted me on the foreign field, why, of course I must go to the foreign field. It was not a question of whether if I wanted to go or not, I was no longer my own. At the time, I had no indication, no clear indication, that it was the foreign field he wanted. I was willing, if it were, to go. That was all. Why were they all so excited that I'd raised my hand? Edna had unwittingly brought a much deeper blessing. Cabin life with her was my first encounter with a spirit-filled life living in its daily routine habits. It was Edna, off the platform, who wrought most for me. She sought the Lord's face before that of anyone else at the beginning of each day. There was no wake-up chatter or pillow-flinging nonsense at dawn. The deeply bruised heart hungered and panted after the Lord. Her first waking thought was longing for His fellowship and presence. She kindled the same hunger in me. Remember, I had a bruised heart, too. She read Philippians with me and Alice's marginal notes. There's one thing I do, how it smote home, because this precept was lived out before my eyes. I marked it in my Bible, too. Rejoice always, Edna had attained to that. How could I ever learn the secret? I marked the verse but decided to try Philippians 4.11 as more within the possibility of attainment. For I have learned, in whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. This became my life verse for the next ten years or so, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Philippians 3.10 Great words that moved me to the depths of my being. I was on that quest. Little did I know beyond that a mere fact that my feet were on the highway and I was searching for him. Next time it will be chapter 6, Extinguished Tapers. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.